I'm Kat. And I'm Taylor. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. This week we're looking at a case which personally I find fascinating and I don't think it gets the attention it deserves because it is wild. It really is. It is a story of family annihilation in the 1970s in small town New Jersey and a 17-year hunt for justice. It is the list of family murders. Yeah, this is um, actually one of the cases that got me into true crime to begin with when I was like 12. So I'm really excited to do this one because it's like... I always hate to say like it's it's one of my favorites because it's a horrible murder, but also it's one of my favorites. So there you go. Yeah. Well, I think it is. It is fascinating and it, it does deserve more attention. People mm-hmm. need to know, mm-hmm. especially how it was solved as well. Yeah. Oh, totally. So but we'll get into all of that. Don't you worry your oh. pretty little ears about it. Um, all coming up soon. <laughs> So, to kick us off, on December 7th, 1971, police entered the basement of the List family's home in Westfield, New Jersey. Um, the house was a Victorian mansion called Breeze Knoll, which just sounds lovely. I would love to be on a Breezy Knoll right now. Just It sounds like a haunted house. Well, I love it. Yeah, that too. Oh, especially because it's a Victorian mansion. Like, ooh, can you imagine... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Like, like a little trees. breeze through it. Yeah. It's up on a hill. Yep, yeah, yep, all yep. the trees. There's Very a, atmospheric. There's an old Victorian house up on a hill um, near us in Vermont. And for years and years, um, it was all... It had, like, plastic coating all the windows from the inside because people weren't living there full time. And so every time we drive by it, I'd be like, oh, look, it's the haunted house on the hill. And my dad'd be like, yep, yep, it's, <laughs> it's the haunted house. You're right. It's totally what it is. But like, See, I, don't, I always appreciated that, that he let here. me think that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't have a haunted house in our village. There is, so the oldest house in our village, um, the current owners had like basically stripped it all back and found like priest holes and things. So this house is like nearly 500 years old. Wow. So it's like where Catholic priests would basically hide in the walls and under the floors during a time of Ooh. Catholic persecution ah. um, and all kinds of things like that. But it's not creepy to look at. Yeah. So it doesn't have the same appeal. Anyway, so, <laughs> yes, uh, the, the mansion is called Breeze Knoll. It was creepy. It was cool. It was a big house. It was Victorian. Yay. Um, so... The List family were known to be uh, reclusive, but their neighbors hadn't seen them for almost a month, and there didn't seem to be any activity at the house, despite the fact that the lights were on throughout the house all day long and all night long. And that's for, like, a month. That's not weird. Yes, it is. So, uh, one by one, the lights began to burn out, as will happen if you leave all your lights on for a fucking month. And... uh, (laughs) And the house slowly descended into darkness. Um, And it was then that the neighbors decided to call the police. But on their first visit, despite there being no answer from the family and no signs of life at all, police decided there was nothing untoward going on and just left. And I suppose 
It's not illegal to abandon your house. No. Oh. Hello, dog. He opened the door. Big bamboo. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, he's so thank cute. You. Rigby, what do you have to say for yourself? <laughs> Devil dog. Get out of here, demon boy. <laughs> oh. Had a, I had a, a, a mysterious haunted visitor. <laughs> <laughs> your puppy has learned how to open doors. That's, just, that's never good because we have a lot With of With the help doors. of your wife. But yeah, I know where we were. Okay. Yeah, if, if it's the 1970s, you could easily like even sell your house and nobody would have to know. Yeah, or like, you know, you could do it like uh, some like private brokerage or whatever without you know the general population of the town even knowing oh yeah you could ha you could sell it like and unlisted just, like, and yeah you could have just upped and moved so yeah i can see you know if there's no sign of like forced entry you know malicious damage anything like that then yeah i can see how they came to that conclusion yeah um but that same evening, one of the children's teachers visited the house. Uh, the children hadn't attended school for a month. And despite a note from their father, John List, saying that they were going on an extended vacation, uh, the teachers were beginning to worry about the family quite a bit. And it was this teacher who convinced the police to enter through an unlocked window in the basement. Mm -hmm. Always the basement. Always the basement. So... Police moved through the house until they got to the ballroom because this mansion is so large it has a ballroom. Uh, there they found the bodies of four members of the List family. 46-year-old Helen List, her daughter Patricia, age 16, and sons John III, age 15, and Frederick, 13. Um, a full search of the house revealed the body of 85-year-old Alma List, Helen's mother-in-law and the children's grandmother, up in the attic. Uh, now, the one person missing from the scene was 46-year-old John List Jr., husband of Helen, son of Alma, and father of Patricia John and Frederick. So, who was John List, and what had led to the tragic deaths of his entire family? And where the hell was this guy? Million-dollar question. Yeah. John Emil List was born in Bay City, Michigan uh, in September 1925 and he was the only child of German-American parents John Frederick List and Alma Barbara Florence List. Never trust someone with three first names. Oh yeah, it's never good. Uh, so some sources describe John Emil List as John Senior and others as John Junior. But since there were three generations all called John, we've gone with John Frederick List is John Senior, John Emil List is John Junior, and John List is John the Third. Yeah. And we'll probably even forget that when we get further into it. Oh, I'm sure but, we you know. Will. Basically, there are three of them. Yeah. Two of them figure heavily in the story. Yeah. <laughs> One of them is already passed away. Uh, John was a devout Lutheran, just like his father, and he also taught Sunday school. 
Uh, at the age of 18, he enlisted in the US Army and served as a lab tech during the Second World War. Following his discharge in 1946, List attended the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, where he achieved a bachelor's degree in business administration and a master's in accounting. He also became a second lieutenant in the Reserve Officers Training Corps. And in 1950, he was called up for active duty in Korea. So at Fort Eustace, I think, Virginia. Um, yeah, that's how I would say it. Which just doesn't sound like a fun place, Fort Eustace. Um, uh, List met Helen Morris Taylor, who lived nearby with her daughter, Brenda. Helen was widowed after her husband was killed in action in Korea. And in, uh, and in December 1951, the couple were married in Baltimore. Uh, but uh, the two of them only got married because Helen told John that she was pregnant. So he was, you know, a strict, devout Lutheran, but not so devout that he was prepared to do the whole no sex before marriage thing. Yeah guess not me senses some hypocrisy there i mean yeah yeah and this is not just me being a bitch this is relevant as we go on yes yes it is so it turned out that helen wasn't pregnant uh which left john feeling tricked poor man um but he wasn't about to break his marriage vows and file for divorce because you know devout Lutheran, all that bullshit. Um, shortly after the wedding, the family moved to California and List was reassigned to the U.S. Army's Finance Corps before completing another tour of duty in Korea. Uh, in 1952, the family moved to Detroit, where List worked for an accountancy firm before move moving to Kalamazoo in central Michigan, which is just... I love that name. It's the best named city ever. So the family settled in Kalamazoo for a number of years, and it was here that Patricia, John III, and Frederick were all born. In 1960, Helen's daughter, Brenda, married and moved out of the family home, and the rest of the List family moved to Rochester, New York, when John took a job with Xerox, uh, where he would eventually become the director of accountancy. My mom used Can to work I for just Xerox. Say Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, I was just going to say that is that sounds like incredibly good luck on Brenda's part. Yes. To, to marry and move out of the family home. Yes, seriously. Good job, Brenda. Uh, so in 1965, List took the job of vice president at a bank in Jersey City and moved the family to the suburbs and uh, into the Victorian mansion, Breeze Knoll, where they would live until that fateful autumn of 1971. So, like we said earlier, the family was quite reclusive. Obviously, there was work. Uh, List was active in the church as a Sunday school teacher. Children had their own high school stuff going on. But outside of this, they weren't seen very often in the local community. Um, they weren't particularly active in community events or things like that. Uh, in the late 1950s, Helen began to struggle with alcohol addiction following the births of the three list children and reportedly became, quote, increasingly unstable. 
although we're not entirely sure what that means and whether the neighbours were aware of this, what impact that had on the lives of her husband and her children. Um, but with the family being as reclusive as they reportedly were, we can't help but feel that her problems uh, only put more distance between them and their local community. Yeah, more than likely. Um, so along with the bodies of the five list family members, authorities found a note addressed to John's pastor at the local Lutheran church. Uh, but we'll come back to the note later. So just put a pin in that, but no, it exists. A manhunt began for John Emil list. Uh, Westfield, New Jersey was considered a, a very safe place to live and raise a family with very few violent crimes um, being recorded in the decade before the murders. So the annihilation of an entire family was, as you can imagine, pretty big news. And the story made the front page across the United States. Um, in fact... I mean, that's going to be big news wherever you are, isn't it? I would think so. Even if, even if you ask somewhere that's fairly unsafe or has a lot of violent crimes like an entire family shot dead and one sole survivor now being you know just in the wind yeah especially because like of the way they were found and like they were left there for nearly a month and like it's just very um sensational i would say oh yeah in fact, the List family murders were considered the most notorious crime in New York since the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby in 1932, which is really saying yeah, something. Yeah, fucked up. That should be New Jersey. Oh. No. Sorry. New Jersey wishes it was New York, so, you know, forget about <laughs> it. Forget about it. Um, Please never say that again. Forget about it. So despite the attention the case received and the hundreds of leads that police investigated, there was no sign of John List. This guy just disappeared into thin air. So the bodies of Helen List and her three children were buried at the Fairview Westfield Cemetery. And Alma List was repatriated to Michigan, where she was buried at the St. Lorenz Lutheran Cemetery. Uh, Breeze Knoll remained empty for the next nine months until it was burned in an arson fire in August 1972. The building was almost completely destroyed, including the ballroom's stained glass skylight, which was rumoured to be signed by be an original signed Tiffany. Oh. Worth approximately $100,000 at that time in 1972. Yeah. Which is about, which according to the interwebs, $639,755 or £479,179 today. That's or a few days ago when I wrote the script. That's an expensive skylight. Like, yeah. Tiffany stained glass skylight in your house. Holy shit. Yeah. That's not uh, like that's not something you just forget about. Is no, it? it's like and it's one thing to have like oh we have an, a Tiffany lamp with like you know the the glass stained glass shades or something yeah. like that in and of itself 
is a major sort of antique achievement, but to have a fucking skylight worth half a million. The whole ass window. Like, it's, uh, that's amazing. Um, the arson still remains unsolved to this day. And a new house was built on the site in 1974. Two days after the bodies were discovered, uh, John List's car was found parked 35 miles away at JFK, JFK Airport in Queens. The date on the parking ticket was November 10th. But there was no evidence that he ever even entered the airport building, never mind got on a plane. And this is where, despite... The FBI, local law enforcement, pretty much everybody's best efforts. The case went cold for roughly 18 years. It's a long time for someone to just be missing. That's like two thirds of our lives. Yeah. Um, so in 1989, the cold case team and America's Most Wanted hired forensic artist Frank Bender to create a bust of how he believed John List would have aged. And in May of that year, it was shown on America's Most Wanted. Uh, usually at the end of the show, they would show a photo of the wanted fugitive. But the problem with that was that the most recent photo of John List was taken years before the murders. So they didn't even have a photo from the time of the murders. Um, and this also because List had destroyed all of the family photos that he was in uh, before he disappeared into thin air. So Frank Bender created the age progression bust from clay and based it on photographs and opinions from psychologists. These psychologists theorized that List would wear the same kind of horn-rimmed glasses he had worn when he was younger uh, to remind him of his success before his entire life went to shit. Uh, which is just lovely. I wear these glasses to remind me of, of the days, the halcyon days of my youth when everything wasn't horrible and I didn't murder my family. <laughs> um, so the episode of America's Most Wanted was watched by an audience of 22 million people on May 21st, 1989. And the tips came pouring in just as they had following the original media circus in 1971. Now, it turns out that forensic artist and sculptor Frank Bender was really fucking good at his job. Yeah. And the age progression clay bust was a dead ringer for the now 63-year-old John List. In the Forensic Files episode on this case, uh, which I think was the first time I'd ever heard of this case was when I watched this years ago. Um, Frank Bender talks about creating the bust and how he worked with the psychologist to try and get a better idea of how John List would have aged because it's not just as simple as adding a few lines and wrinkles. Yeah. One of the things he uh, Frank Bender had to think about was how would John List's crimes have weighed on his conscience and how would that manifest itself physically in his appearance. Um. He talks about how, you know, he would seem anxious and kind of have like a downturned mouth mm -hmm. because he'd be, you know, have remorse and be upset and everything for this, his crimes. And then a psychologist was like, actually, he probably does look like that, but it's not because of the crimes weighing on him. It's because he's scared of getting caught. Yeah. So that's like, re it's so interesting. 
as to how they they did all the research for it and created that bust i know i think what's Um, what's cool is the like connection between the psychology and like physicality which is a part of sort of yeah criminal profiling that you don't hear as much about i feel like um no but it's so fascinating uh frank bender also researched how a scar that list had behind his ear would have aged um, and he studied photos of List's parents to try and get a sense of genetic aging because we all age differently. Yeah. Amongst the hundreds of tips that came in following the broadcast uh, was one from a woman in Denver, Colorado named Wanda Flannery. Great name. <laughs> and she claims that the bust looked just like her former neighbour, Robert Clark. Uh, she also said that he was an accountant and reg regularly attended the local Lutheran church. Aha. Uh, Wanda had been watching the program with her daughter and the pair were shocked at just how much the bust looked like their former neighbor. Uh-huh. So, with with tip in hand, authorities tracked down Robert Clark to Midlothian, Virginia, uh, in the suburbs of state capital Richmond, and interviewed his wife, Dolores. Uh, Dolores was an army PX clerk and had met uh, Robert Clark at a church gathering while living in Colorado where Clark slash list had lived from uh, 1979 to 1988. And the couple had married in 1985. Dolores was also a close friend of their neighbor, Wanda Flannery. And it was Wanda who had told the authorities uh, that the couple had moved to Virginia. In 1988, the couple had moved to the suburbs of Richmond when uh, Clark took a new accountancy job using the name Robert Bob Clark, since the name had worked for him in Colorado already. And it was later discovered that John List had attended college with a man named Robert Clark and used the name to ensure that there was a paper trail as far as his qualifications went. Uh, Although the real Robert Clark would later say he had no knowledge of who John List was. I just love that, like... Oh, yeah, I, I went to college with this person and, you know, that I knew he had the same qualifications as me. So that's why I used his name. And then they're like, who? Sorry, who now? Yeah, I don't remember any John List. So on June 1st, 1989, less than two weeks after the episode of America's Most Wanted aired, police in Richmond arrested Bob Clark at his place of work um, and... Bob Clark, or John List, stuck by his new alias for several months, even after he was extradited to New Jersey. Yeah, I think that's incredible. But it was less than two weeks after Yeah, uh, Wanda Flannery phoned in and was like, this is my neighbor. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, my former neighbor. Yeah. In late 1989, John List was faced with the irrefutable proof that he was John List. <laughs> as his fingerprints matched those held on file by the U.S. Army for John List, who had served two tours of Korea and worked in the Finance Corps. Not only this, but they also matched the prints on a firearm permit that John List had filed just one month before the murders. Yeah. But still, he didn't crack. (laughs) He held out that he was Robert Clark for a few more months, 
Uh, that was until February 12th, 1990, when he finally confessed to being John Emil List, who had been on the run for more than 18 years. And so finally, the truth about what happened that fateful day in November 1971 came out. So let's go back to the beginning. Rewind. Um, you really want a soundboard, yes. don't you? Yes. Be so much fun. No, I am my <laughs> own soundboard. What are you talking about? That's true. Um, <laughs> I was literally known in middle school for like just inserting sound effects into conversation. <laughs> so <laughs> if that... If that clears anything up. You still do that now. Yes. If that clears anything up for any, anyone about my personality. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so it turned out that in early 1971, John List had lost his job at the bank. The, you know, that vice president's job. So big job to lose. Um, yeah. But rather than just admit this and find a new job, as most people would do, he pretended that everything was fine. He was like that dog in the meme, surrounded by the fire. Like this, he was like, "This is fine. Everything oh, is yeah. fine. This is fine." I never thought of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he decided instead to just leave for work every day and park his car at the train station, and then he would take the train a couple of stops so everyone thought he was off to work and then he would spend all day sitting in that train station reading newspapers and return home as normal after work hours um so unsurprisingly this whole charade didn't pay the bills can you imagine that reading newspapers in a fucking train station oh. all day doesn't pay the bills if, if sitting around reading all day paid the bills, we'd be loaded. Oh my god, yes. Because this didn't pay the bills, he began skimming money from his mother's bank accounts. Nice, nice son that he was. Um, so, List had also bought a second property a few years earlier. Um, although, we're not sure sort of the nature of this property, if it was like a summer home or if it was a rental property but either way he couldn't afford the upkeep on both that second property and Breeze Knoll um, which I'm not surprised fucking Victorian mansion that would have a lot of upkeep yeah I think I read somewhere it had like 19 rooms oh boy uh, plus uh, the like the granny attic mm. flat that his mother lived in Plus the grounds. <laughs> Plus everything. And they've got a, a second home. Yeah. Um, so that summer, his children ended up taking summer jobs to help keep the family afloat. Um, but despite all this, uh, John List spiraled into tens of thousands of dollars of debt. So as well as not getting another job like a normal responsible adult... Uh, John List also refused to seek any kind of help or wealth welfare from the state. He did this because he believed the family would never be able to recover from the shame and embarrassment of claiming welfare. 
Uh, he also said that claiming welfare would go against the principles of self-sufficiency that had been instilled in him from a young age by his father. And he hated the idea of his late father being ashamed of him. So skimming money from your mother's bank accounts isn't self-sufficiency. Yeah, not so much. Nor is making your kids get a week get weekend jobs to pay the bills. Yeah, when you're when Their you're kids. not paying the bills, like. Yeah, so, yeah, his father would be ashamed of him for seeking help from the state, but he said nothing about whether his father would have thought, you know, would his father have been ashamed of him for murdering his entire family? Rather than find a new job. I have a feeling that John Sr. might have had a few words about that choice, but... Yeah, maybe. Um, So the family had clearly been living far beyond their means for quite a while. And Liszt also claimed that living a working class life or, you know, living off of welfare until he found himself a new job would drive his children... Uh, away from the church and into a life of sin and poverty. Um, he's also disgusted with his daughter Patricia's aspirations of becoming an actress as he viewed the profession as sinful and immoral. So in the mind of John Emile List, there was only one solution to all of these problems and it sure as shit wasn't finding a job and supporting his family. Obviously not. That morning on November 9th, 1971... John List left the house as normal, dropping off his kids at school. He then returned home where his wife was sitting um, in the kitchen, sipping her morning coffee. He shot her in the back of the head, execution style, with no warning. Um, He rolled her body onto a sleeping bag and dragged her from the kitchen into the ballroom. He then went up to the self-contained apartment on the third floor, uh, or second floor for our British listeners, um, his mother Alma had lived in this self-contained uh, flat for a number of years um, and so List walked into the apartment and shot her in the head now going back to the letter we mentioned earlier that he wrote to his pastor well in this letter List wrote that he had planned to move his mother's body to the ballroom with the rest of the family but that she was too heavy and he couldn't carry her down two sets of stairs. So he left her up there. Lovely. So after murdering his wife and mother, John List made himself a sandwich and just... Yeah, as we all do. Yeah. I always make a sandwich after murder. Um, and he just hung out in the house writing a couple of letters like there weren't two corpses in there with him. But similarly to Edward Pritchard from last week, who wrote a letter to the bank like five minutes after his wife oh, yeah. died. So maybe it's a thing. Yeah, maybe that's just how mass murderers calm down. Yeah. Little little correspondence. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like keeping a journal, just get everything out there. <laughs> John List wrote letters to his children's schools and various extracurricular activities and to the bosses at their weekend jobs. And in these letters, he said that the children would be absent for a few weeks because the family were going on an extended vacation to North Carolina to visit Helen's mother, who he claimed was terminally ill. 
He drove to the post office to mail these letters, then closed out his and his mother's bank accounts, withdrawing all the money. He cancelled their milk and newspaper deliveries, all on the pretense of leaving town for a while. Uh, he then went back home to wait for his children to come back from school. Great. So, Patricia was the first to return home from school, and John shot her in the back of the head and then placed her on top of a sleeping bag and dragged her into the ballroom, laying her next to her mother. Son Frederick was the next to return home, and List, once again, shot him in the back of the head, just as he had with the previous three. He then made himself another meal. Hungry guy. Uh, before... Well, it's just a late lunch, just isn't it? Yeah, it's fine. It takes a lot of energy. Yeah. Shooting people in the back of the Dra- head when they're warm. All the dragging and... Sleeping bags and the letter writing. letter writing. His hands probably tired. Um, mm. Yeah. So he made himself another meal and then left the house to watch his son, John, play a football game. And now that's American football. So, you know, with the, with the oblong ball, not the spherical one. Um, so it's basically rugby with a lot of padding and a helmet. And different rules. Very different. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But, yes. It's not football. You carry the ball and run with it. Some of them kick it. You have kickers. Occasionally. That is not the point. (laughs) What do you... Not football. What are you supposed to call it? Hand run ball? Sure. That makes more sense. <laughs> it's more accurate. But like, okay, what about Gaelic football where they kick the ball and then pick it up? I'm not well versed on Gaelic <laughs> football, so I can't comment. <laughs> it's fun to watch. I'll tell you that much. Um, so anyway, after the hand run ball game, um, <laughs> they drove home. And... Once inside the house, John shot his son, but young John put up a fight and ended up suffering multiple gunshot wounds, eventually dying from a shot to the chest. Um, And his body was described as being riddled with bullets. I I just can't imagine, like, you're struggling with your son, who has your name, yeah, to murder him... And so you fill him with, like, I just, this guy, I swear to God. He, I mean, he talked about how he shot them all in the back of the head because he didn't want them to have any warning. He didn't want their last thoughts to be like horror or anything like that. But yeah, sure. Just empty yeah. however many bullets into your son's chest. Yeah. List went around the house, cleaned up the crime scenes, tidied everything up, wrote the letter to his pastor. Uh, And this was because he believed his pastor would be the only one to understand why he had murdered his entire family, uh, you know, rather than just be poor or sell the house or downsize. (laughs) There is a video on YouTube, which is a reading of the entire letter he wrote, and we will link it in the show notes below, because I don't think that we can actually read out this entire letter without numerous puns, sarcastic comments and tangents. 
Probably not. I think that's a safe bet. Like, we should just stop while we're ahead. Uh, after he wrote the letter to his pastor, uh, John List cut his face out of every photo he could find in the house. Cool. Basically to try and make it more difficult for law enforcement to track him down. Um, because the family were quite reclusive outside of the church, there weren't that many photos of him elsewhere. I mean, smart on his part, but also, again, just fucking ultimate douchebaggery, this guy. Like, he's going... And it shows premeditation. Yes, he's, That's he's the thing going as well. beyond the point of, like, I'm saving their souls. I'm also covering my yeah. own ass. Like, it's... Oh, yeah. And he... He knows... That there are legal repercussions for what he's done. Yeah. That is abundantly clear. Yeah, absolutely. So, cut his face out of all the photos like like a, a bad ex. And <laughs> um, next, he turned the radio to his favorite Christian station because, of course, he did. And um, he set up the intercom system um, to blast the station throughout the house. And then he went to bed. Is this like just to make sure that the family, you know, they can't, obviously can't go to church because he's killed them. So it's like, oh, you're going to you're going to get your like dose of of christianity and prayer and it's so everything. weird and that like he goes to sleep he sleeps in the house with the christian mm. radio blasting through every room and like i just don't get it it's so bizarre um so after his apparently relaxing sleep um the next morning he got up, as usual, and left the house. He abandoned his car at JFK and then took a train west, eventually settling in Denver, Colorado. Um, now, as we said earlier, the mansion, Breeznell, burned down the year after the murders and uh, an original signed Tiffany skylight was discovered, or what was left of it after the fire. Here's the real kicker. <laughs> This skylight alone, if it had been properly removed and sold, would have been enough to get the family out of their financial troubles completely and hold them over until List found a new job. This fucking skylight could have solved everything. During his 18 years on the run, the FBI had kind of two lines of thought as to what had become of John List. Uh, they believed he had either gone on the run, assumed a new identity, and was now living his best debt-free life. And they did actually believe he was somewhere out in... I mean, they, they thought the Midwest rather than... Colorado's yeah. too far west to be Midwest. Yes, that, that's like... Like in the Rockies. Rockies but, yeah. yeah, but they did think he had gone out west <laughs> to start a new life. Interesting. And the second was that he had taken his own life likely somewhere remote, and that his body was as yet undiscovered. Um, but List claimed that the reason why 
he didn't kill himself was because if he did, he wouldn't go to heaven and therefore he would never be reunited with his family in the afterlife. Mm. For some reason, he didn't see his murdering five people, you know, his mother, his wife and his three children as any kind of barrier to, you know, Eternal the pleasant salvation. afterlife. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that somewhere on the Ten Commandments list, there's one that says, Thou shall not kill. Yeah. Pretty sure that's up there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, his second wife, Dolores, who he married in Colorado, had no idea of John List's crimes. He had never, to- like, he had told her that he was a widower, that his first wife had died from cancer. And, you know, he was just a lonely man starting again. Um, the couple did, however, divorce following his arrest. She Good for you, she Dolores. S- she stuck by him for a while, though, until I think it became crystal clear. That I think once actually. Yeah, once they had like all the fingerprints that matched up, I think she was like, I'm out of here. I was going to say, did she did she get a free copy of uh, divorce papers? With her copy of the fingerprints as well. <laughs> Maybe like, okay, here's, here's a good like, it's like um, a divorce attorney. Just four for three deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, I feel very sorry for oh her. She yeah. genuinely had no like, idea and thought he was just this nice just, old, well, he wasn't old, but this nice man that she'd met in church. It just sucks. And like to like to learn that like oh yeah not only is this guy not who he said he was has been wanted by the FBI for nearly 20 years but he killed his whole family and like to to realize that you've been like living with that yeah for an extended period of time and like it's like oh i'm his family now yeah like like what the oh, fuck if if we got into finance if you know, if we got into financial problems, would he then like would he have tried to kill me just to go and yeah. live a debt free life? So on April twelfth, nineteen ninety, List was found guilty of five counts of murder and was sentenced to five life terms without parole to be served consecutively, uh, which at the time was the most severe punishment in the state of New Jersey. Um, he filed numerous appeals. In one, he claimed that he suffered PTSD following his military service in Korea and that uh, that had impaired his judgment. Another claimed that the letter to his pastor, which was essentially a confession, was private correspondence and therefore should not have been admissible as evidence, which when has that ever been a fucking thing? Like, Like if no, if you confessed in a confessional to a priest that's protected yeah and but you wrote it down <laughs> yeah that's the thing you wrote it down you didn't mail it to your pastor no See, if he'd you done that it then there. it would be up to the minister it would be his it would be the pastor's yeah. decision what the same pastor is making me feel hungry um Different thing. 
I know, but I'm now thinking about pasta. So mm -hmm. if he'd mailed this letter, then it would be private correspondence. It would be in the hands of another person. It would be up to him if he, you know, went to the police and said, uh, I've just got this letter from a member of my congregation who says he's murdered five people and is now on the run. Yeah. But no, he left it there. What did he think he's that the pastor would be the one to find the bodies and just be totally chill about it? Thankfully, all of his appeals were rejected by a federal appeals court because they were all bullshit. Um, he did eventually express some regret for the murders, saying, quote, I've regretted my action and prayed for forgiveness ever since. End quote. Oh, that's all right then. Yeah. Good uh, on you, mate. Like, that's all you really need. Yeah. So John List served almost 18 years in New Jersey State Prison. And on March 21st, 2008, he died following complications from pneumonia whilst in prison custody at the St. Francis Medical Center in Trenton, New Jersey. He was 82 years old. So he was actually on the run for longer than he was in prison. Yeah. And that is the story of the List family murders. Thoughts? Oh, boy. Like, I hate this guy. Yeah. One. Thought one. Hmm. I hate this guy. Thought two. The fucking Tiffany Skylight. Like, is one of the best parts of the story. <laughs> I um, love that. Yeah. Uh... Thought three, so I first came across this case, I think by watching like a rerun of the America's Most Wanted episode that featured him. Or maybe it was like a date line that then referenced, like so something like that, like yeah. some cable news, whatever. Um, and I just remember seeing the bust and then seeing the comparison and being like holy shit that and is incredible like i don't think you could do amazing. a better job if you were looking if you had him as like had a subject him. in front of you yeah like and like what i love and they mention it in that um forensic files episode that we'll link to is that so uh frank bender had obviously had like a handful of, of old glasses and stuff that he would put on his, his busts to, you know, make them yeah. seem more realistic. And he happened to pick a pair for the John List bust. And when they arrested the guy, he was wearing identical glasses. Yeah. Like that's, it's amazing. That is incredible. And also testament to the psychologists, psychiatrists who worked with Frank Bender yeah. as well. Yeah, and, you know, absolutely. thinking, oh, he'd use this type of glasses because that's what he wore when he was young and successful and not when he was, you know, a piece of shit who wouldn't just get a job. Yeah. Who was living life at the train station every morning. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I... Uh, it's just... It's such a wild story. The fact that he eluded capture for 18 years is, like, is amazing. Yeah. And, like, clearly people... But that's the thing that, like, sometimes you hear about these 
fugitives who, who like, they really stay, like, super low profile. Yeah. But he basically just started reliving his life, the same life, under a new name. He was an accountant. Yeah. He was, uh, he was active in the church. Like, all this stuff. Like, yeah, that's, that's what's wild. That's the thing. He, he didn't even go, I know, sort of the the nearest kind of comparison to any other case we've done is uh, the canoe man. He didn't go out and find um, a new, like he didn't go and like perfect this new identity, like have all they the like relevant paperwork. He didn't even try and go yeah. abroad. But I mean, this, given the size of the, the USA and how you can easily just like cross state lines and jurisdiction changes, there's not, information isn't shared even between counties let alone interstate yeah. yeah um so it's it's quite incredible yeah and also just the story of one just asshole mediocre white man mm-hmm. who decided um, that his pride was more important than uh letting four other people five other people live yeah i think that family annihilators specifically uh, you know on the on the spectrum of sort of mass murder serial killers whatever they are the most selfish bullshit motherfuckers oh yeah like it's so it's always such a thin like reasoning and so self-centered like ultimate assholery yeah uh it just drives me wild uh there's a line in that forensic files episode again so clearly if we've read referenced it this much you should go watch it yeah. but the like um uh oh god what's his name mark walsh right the american america's most wanted guy um, I know who you mean, and I can't think. I think his name is Mark Walsh. Uh, if if I'm wrong about that, correct me. But um, <laughs> yeah. uh, so he says, like, if it wasn't for Frank Bender and the psychologists, the profilers, like, John List easily could have just kept living this secret life and never been caught. It is John Walsh. John, not Mark. Sorry. John Walsh said that. John Walsh. Yeah. But like, Quick Google. that's, that's the thing. Like, it's yeah, amazing. That, yeah. That like blew my mind that even, and I think uh, one of the, was it one of the FBI uh, agents said pretty much the same thing as well. You know, that, yeah. the bust, because it was so accurate, that is what caught. Yeah. Um, that is how they caught John List. Uh, without it, he'd just be out there just lying to everyone about, you know, his dead wife yeah. who, you know, painted himself as this oh, like, poor widow whose wife died from widow. cancer. Widower, yeah. No, absolutely. Oh, crap. Just kicked the t- <laughs> kicked my desk. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so on that note. <laughs> yeah. I think that's all we really have to say about yeah. <laughs> John List. Yeah, we'll put um, photos of the bust and, like, the side-by-side up on 
the website for this episode and we'll put all, all the various links in the show notes. So you can, it's really worth seeing it yeah. instead of just hearing us ramble about it for yeah, a while. Like you got to go. see it to believe it. Yeah, definitely go and look at it. You wouldn't believe that he was not looking at that person. Yeah, whilst absolutely. He was sculpting that plaque. Yeah, is so incredible. <laughs> yeah, truly, truly. Um, so thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, come join us on social media. Uh, you know, tell us what you think about this case. Would you have sold the Tiffany skylight, or would you? No, I won't go there. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would have. Uh, yeah, I would have too. Fuck. I'd sell the Keypass um, Velux skylight in our roof if it meant <laughs> we would be more financially secure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just put put a tarp and a and some plywood over that shit and call it a day. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, so come find us on Instagram, join our Facebook group, and let us know what you think. Um, especially your reaction to the the bust. Want to want to hear all about that. Um, if you have a minute or two to spare, we would love it if you could give us a rating, uh, and review on Apple podcasts or, um, Spotify or wherever you're listening to us right now. Um, it, it really does help us reach more people. So we love that. And like we always say, if you'd like to go one step further, uh, you can become a patron of the show at patreon.com slash slash square mile of murder. Um, <laughs> pledges start at just $1 or 75p a month, and all patrons get regular episodes a day early. Um, if you go for $2 per month, you get some uh, exclusive merch, and at uh, $5 and up per month, you get extra bonus content like minisodes and full-length bonus episodes. So check that out. A lot of stuff going on there. Uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, we will see you next week with a brand new episode. And it's a good one. I'm excited uh, about next yes. week's. Yeah. So so look out for that. Yeah. Come back. <laughs> <laughs> please, um, please come back. Yeah. Come back to us next week. Right. And yeah, we'll see you then. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye.